Welcome to Vital Voices. The voice of our guest today is well known within Appalachian writing circles. He has written and edited seven books, among them The Blueberry Years, a memoir of farm and family. In his latest book, he has turned his attention to the Midwest, telling the story of Udall, Kansas, and its near destruction by a tornado on May 25, 1955. His book, entitled Without Warning, also tells the uplifting story of how this small Kansas town recovered from disaster. Jim, thanks for joining us for Vital Voices. It's great to be here. Thank you, Fred. It's, it's really an honor to be in this, this studio. I know your initial plan was to turn this project into a novel, and that evolved into a book we would, I guess, classify as creative nonfiction. Correct. What initially hooked you about this whole story of Udall and the destruction and all the events surrounding it? Both the immense power of the storm as well as the, the immense uh, resilience of the people a friend of mine grew up there, and I, I just heard a little bit of, of the story from her. But then as I started to interview the survivors, it was like, wow, this is really incredible. You know, this tornado came in the, at 1035 at night, and there was absolutely no warning. And most people were in bed or heading that way, and, and, um, and then the tornado was right on them. So some people got into shelters, but a lot of people did not. And the power of the storm, uh, the tornado, I mean, just there's a train parked in the middle of town. Um, there, there was a crew working on this, this railway and the tornado twisted that train like we would twist a towel. And then just the, the people's re- resiliency and in, in rebuilding. You mentioned the fact that there was no warning. What role did this disaster play in our ability to predict weather more accurately in the country? It was a wake-up call to the Weather Service. Um, they realized they needed to do more in terms of predicting better and, and notifying people better. The radar at the time was very primitive. The closest radar in Wichita was maybe 20 miles away. It did not pick up that it was a tornado in the storm. But the, the, the same tornado system, same storm system, had killed, uh, had struck a town in, in Oklahoma, Blackwell, Oklahoma, about an hour before this, and um, and killed 25 people there. And nowadays, we, you know, that's a whole hour that they could have been forewarning people ahead of the ahead of the tornado, but they just did not have that technology. So it was a slow awakening. You start the book out with the story of a little boy on a paper route, a little boy named Gary Atkinson. Mm-hmm. Describe the the last day of his life. So Gary was 12. Um, he was the middle of three boys. He had inherited the paper route from his older brother, Bobby. The three of them liked to play baseball. That afternoon before the st- tornado, Gary went to get the newspapers, which were delivered by in a bundle by an airplane. And then he would pick them up and fold them and stuff them in his bag and then start delivering them and then get on his bike and ride around town. Just about everybody got the paper. About 5 o'clock, he rode his bike around the last corner and parked it in the front yard and 
that was the last time he delivered a paper or rode a bike and the last time he ate a meal he died that night in the tornado their house was totally destroyed uh, you mentioned his older brother bobby who was horribly injured but bobby made it through the, the two younger boys were asleep already. They shared one room, and Bobby felt the house shift and, and jumped through the window and duck, ducked himself down uh, on the, along the foundation of the house. And he said the fir- first front wall of the tornado felt like just a massive wind, it, uh, so strong that it took all of his clothing off. And then there was a lull, and he stood up and, and looked around, and he, there was no house. And... And no family. He he just was like, where is everybody? It looked so, so much like a, a bombed village. And then the second wall, the tornado hit. And uh, he said it felt like a person was shooting a shotgun, had his back over and over while somebody else was beating him on the head over and over. He had incredible wounds, broken leg, two broken arms, a crushed hand, severe concussions, and uh, all kinds of debris embedded in his body, including a two-by-two that punctured his his ribs and um, and punctured, he broke five ribs and punctured a lung and a kidney, I think. So, you know, and he amazingly survived. After months in the hospital. Yeah, yep, yep. He, He was just incredibly strong and lucky. He's still living? He is, yep. Sure is. He was one of the main main people I interviewed for the book, and, and a great, just a great storyteller and person. You describe lots of typical life events that were taking place right before this storm hit. One of them was a wedding shower. Yes, indeed. Eileen Holchi was an elementary school teacher. She had at for you doll. She had grown up in the town. She had gone to those schools, and and then she had taught for I think seven years. She had either taught everybody or she knew knew everybody or she related to a lot of the people as well. And so uh, over 100 people came to her wedding shower that, that evening in the community building. And um, fortunate, and they all brought gifts. And, and fortunately, most of those people had already left when the, the tornado hit. But there were 14 people. The cleanup crew was still there. And um, they all ran first into the bathroom, which started to implode, and then into the kitchen, and they all got on the floor, and that saved them. All 14 people survived. They had injuries, but they were amazingly able to crawl. I mean, if you see pictures of the, the building afterwards, it's just complete rubble. There's nothing there. Um, but they, they, I think the count, they were below the kitchen counters, and that, that the strength of those particular structures um, saved them. And um, so they crawled out and tried to find shelter a couple of different places because it was after the tornado, it was still just a really intense um, rain and thunder and lightning. So many people lost everything they had, but there were a few interesting and unusual mementos that were salvaged from that destruction. Even from the wedding shower. So uh, the next day, the family went back hoping to find uh, gifts that they they could um, use. And they, they only found three, a waffle iron and a mixer and a, a linen tablecloth. And um, even, you know, so that was almost 65 years ago. They, uh, um, 
Eileen pulled it out and showed showed me this tablecloth. It was very, very pretty still, but it had a couple holes and rips. One of the most bizarre scenes in the book, in my opinion, is the the scene in which you describe a house that's been totally destroyed, but inside that house, there's a fishbowl full of water and goldfish, and they're still swimming. Yeah, you know, such craziness. <laughs> and and um, a table, or uh, I think there was an, another story where there's a vase on a refrigerator, and after the storm, the only things remaining in, on that foundation were the refrigerator and the vase, but not the doily that was underneath the vase. Hmm. Um, and another, like another story, there was a house that two-story house that had a staircase, and the whole family. I think there were three, four kids, maybe, and two parents. They all climbed into that little closet underneath the staircase, and that staircase was the only thing that survived that storm. So they they all climbed out and survived as well. This book is full of heroes. One in particular I'd like for you to talk about, the mayor of the town at the time, Earl Toots Rao, and the role he played in bringing the town back. He was, yes, he he was incredible in that role. Um, he had only been mayor for about four months, and he just barely survived the, the tornado as well. He and his family, they did not make it to their storm cave, their storm shelter, um, so they all got on the floor, the parents on top of the kids, and the house basically fell on top of them, and um, he was able to crawl out and kind of get the others out as well. But um, afterwards, he, yeah, as mayor, he realized he needed to, to start the story, to, uh, to create the new narrative. And um, one of my favorite examples of that, he's like a day after he was, he part of the search and rescue or the cleanup after, after, you know, after a day or so. And he was in shock. He was, you know, he he um, he was he lost a lot of family and friends, but he he still knew what needed to happen. And so he was part of the the crew, look, you know, going through the rubble. And another friend came by who was the town marshal. His name was Wayne Keeley, and uh, they they talked about how they survived the storm and who they knew had been killed or was in hospitals and. And then uh, Toots asked Wayne, well, what are you going to do? And Keeley said, oh, I think I'm going to build somewhere else. I think I'm going to move away. And Toots said, the hell you are. I'm going to rebuild, and you're going to rebuild, and we're still going to have this town. So, And we're still going to be neighbors. And so I'm going to rebuild became a chorus that people all, all through the town kind of picked up. And Toots started that and, and was very much instrumental in making that happen as well. He Afterwards, you know, he did tons and tons of paperwork to get the government loans and, and grants as well as uh, insurance. And you know, he had to make phone calls to the governor of the, Kansas at the time. And then also he made a phone call directly to President Eisenhower. One of the great scenes in the book is the, the high school band marching, not in fancy uniforms at all, but in blue jeans and, and white shirts. Mm-hmm. How did the band come back? The storm happened May 25th, and, and in September, uh, the band director had already committed the, the high school band to marching in the annual state fair parade, and that was in September. And, and all this, the high school was destroyed, and all the instruments and all the uniforms were destroyed. Several different organizations very 
quickly donated either money for new instruments or instruments themselves. Other schools donated what they could. So when school started, they had instruments, but they didn't have uniforms. And the band director put it, put it to, this, to the kids, you know, what do you want to do with this upcoming parade? We could cancel or we could all wear the same kind of uniforms. And they, they agreed they wanted to go and they all decided to wear blue jeans and white shirts. So when they got to the parade, you know, they, they were kind of intimidated because here were all, you know, it's, it was a state, statewide state fair, state, statewide bands from all over the, the state came. And um, all the bands had all these fancy uniforms, all these brilliant colors. And um, here was uh, little Udall with just their white shirts and jeans. And But they marched and they played. And when the the crowd realized what who they were and what had happened, they got a standing ovation and uh, a really big write-up in the paper. And, and it was just, just a powerful testimony to our desire to keep going and, and celebrate being alive. If you and I were to travel to Udall, Kansas today, what would you show me that is in existence now that is related to that storm? In 1995, the town erected a, a monument, that uh, a, a huge granite um, block with all the names of the dead. Um, that's probably the, the most uh, significant and telling marker. Um, they also have a, a museum that has... Uh, not just tornado artifacts, but a lot of other things. But it it has some really powerful photographs of of the incident. Uh, the on the, one of the walls, they have all the individual photographs of all the people that died. But other than that, there's there were very few buildings that did survive. But the town is pretty much wiped clean, and so all the rebuilding happened uh, really quickly. And the, a lot of the survivors, in, in reflection. Well, one of the first things they missed was the trees. There's, you know, just no, no trees and and no birds to fill those trees for you know for several years after that. But there are now. Jim, congratulations on the publication of Without Warning, and thank you for joining us for Vital Voices. My pleasure, very much. So thank you. Our guest has been Jim Minnick, and the book is Without Warning: The Tornado of Udall, Kansas. It was published in 2023 by the University of Nebraska Press. Join us next Saturday morning at 7 and Sunday afternoon at 2 for more Vital Voices. I'm Fred Sossman.